Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Natalie Nichols. I am the director of the global part of the RSA, and it is my great pleasure to invite you here to this special event this afternoon. Before we begin, could I ask that you please turn your mobile phones to silent? Um, we're filming today and live streaming over the web, so welcome to all of you that are online. Um, and if you'd like to join the discussion on Twitter, the hashtag is RSA Oil. So I am delighted to introduce you to our guest speaker today, Leif Wenner. Leif is the Chair of, Philosoph of Chair of Philosophy and Law at King's College London. And after earning his bachelor's degree from Stanford, Leif went to Harvard to study with John Rawls. He has since taught at most of the major Ivy League universities and is a fellow of the Programme on Justice and the World Economy at the Carnegie Council. His new book, Blood Oil, has been hailed by some of the world's leading thinkers as an urgent appeal to conscience that the West so desperately needs. In his book, Leif states that Western consumers are blinded by the fact that international trade still operates according to the law of the jungle. If I'm strong enough to take something from you, then I own it and I can reap the benefits. He takes us on a mind-blowing journey through the impact of our relationship with oil and natural resources, to global supply chains, authoritarian regimes, property rights of citizens, and ultimately, the future of humanity. And he provides some solutions as well. So please join me in welcoming Leif Weiner. Thanks so much, Natalie, and thanks so much to Abby and the RSA for the hospitality. And thank you so much for being here and giving up some of your time to talk about topics which may not be the happiest, as you can see, but I promise by the end there will be optimism. We really can take the next step forward in humanity's moral history. Now, with a title like Blood Oil, you might imagine that this book would be about the many unjust wars that our governments have launched, especially in the Middle East, over many decades. You might think it would be about the questionable actions of our oil companies in the developing world, also over many decades. Or you might think it might be about how we should get off of oil just as fast as we possibly can for the sake of our climate and our children's future. And the book does tell those stories, but I'm just going to imagine that if we talked about those things now, we would agree on those points. So that's not the story I want to tell right now. I want to start with a deeper story, which is a story that hasn't been told, about how we as consumers are forced every day to fund much of the suffering and justice in the world that ends up in our headlines. Our own laws are forcing us to empower some of the world's most dangerous men. And to see that story, I'm just going to ask you to think back over the last 40 years and some of the world's most serious threats and crises. See if you can see that these all have one thing in common. So 40 years ago, the Soviet Union was surging ahead of the West in the nuclear arms race. Since 1979, Iran has been sponsoring militant groups from Hezbollah to Islamic Jihad. 1990, Saddam Hussein began to invade his neighbors. Gaddafi, behind terrorist groups from 
the IRA, to the Lockerbie bombers. Al-Qaeda behind 9-11 in New York. <coughs> Al-Qaeda also behind 7-7 here in London, about 100 meters from where I live in Bloomsbury. The genocide in Darfur. Closer to our time, there's the terrible war in Syria, Assad barrel bombing his own people. Putin's also been bombing in Syria, leading to a refugee crisis that's putting pressure on the politics of Europe. And ISIS, of course, keeps inspiring attacks across Europe. And it just breaks my heart that I have to keep adding to this slide, even here in Britain this year. What is going on? Did you guess the common factors behind all of those threats and crises? They all come from countries that export a lot of oil. And the money that's powered those threats and crises has, of course, ultimately come from us, from us consumers, when we buy petrol and everything that's transported with petrol or made from it, which is almost everything we buy. Why is oil so much trouble? Well, the main message of the book is that the culprit is a bad old law left over from the days of the Atlantic slave trade. It's so old that we take it for granted. This is the law of this country, of every country, that says it will be legal for us to buy the natural resources of other countries from whoever can control them by force. This is our law that says for the resources of other countries, might makes right. So for example, years ago when Saddam Hussein's junta took over Iraq in a coup, British law made it legal to buy Iraq's oil from Saddam. And then years later, when ISIS took over some of those same wells, Every country's law made it legal to buy Iraq's oil from ISIS. Every country's default rule is whoever can seize it by force can sell it to us. Now, that's such an old law. It seems like the way the world works. But when you think about it, it makes no sense. I mean, imagine an armed gang takes over a shell station down in Vauxhall. Should British law give the gang the right to sell off the petrol and keep the money? No, that would spark violence and chaos. But that's just the kind of violence and chaos we actually do see in other countries, because our law actually does say might makes right. This bad old law incites oppression and violence. I mean, you can do what philosophers call a thought experiment to see it. Just imagine that the state of New York declared might makes right for everything in New Jersey. Imagine the New York legislature passed a law saying that any goods that are seized in New Jersey could be sold legally to New Yorkers and the property rights enforced by New York's police and courts. 
What do you think New Jersey would look like after a while? You see crime kings and turf wars, grand theft, just the kind of things we do see in major resource exporting countries because our laws do say might makes right. Here is a map of the countries whose main export is oil. And here's a map of the countries that are today either authoritarian or failed. That's the oil curse. That's the result of the world saying might makes right. Now, oil is the world's largest traded commodity by far. It causes most of the trouble in the world. But our laws say might makes right for all the resources of other countries, including metals. So in my phone, in your phone, there might be a small piece of the Congo that was harvested at gunpoint by one of those terrible militias in the war down there who have used sexual violence so extensively in their fight that the Congo has been called the worst country in the world to be a woman. But even if there's a tiny piece of the Congo in my phone, your phone, I guarantee we own our phones 100% free and clear under the laws of this country. Violence there literally turns into property rights here, and our money may have gone back to those men to help them buy more bullets and bayonets. <coughs> Oil is the world's biggest commodity. Oil is the largest source of unaccountable power in the world. Because we are in business with essentially who has the most guns overseas. Whoever can control these holes in the ground, the oil wells, gets a huge funnel of money from the world. And that money is unaccountable. It comes with no strings attached. It never has to be paid back. And of course, the men of violence get the money with no accountability to the people of the country who have to watch from behind fences as the natural assets of their country are sold off beyond their control. For years, the men who have the unaccountable power of oil have been causing a lot of trouble with our money. Let me give you just two examples. In Angola, where we get 1% of our oil, the elite lives in great luxury. Angola produces more oil than Norway. But the children of Angola die at the highest rate in the world. Angola's number one for under, child, under five child mortality. All that money kept at the top, it doesn't go to the people. We get 1% of our oil from Angola. We get 2% from Saudi Arabia. For 40 years, Saudi Arabia has used tens of billions of petrodollars to spread its extreme, intolerant version of Islam around the world, Middle East, Asia, Europe, the America. And that's the version of Islam that we now see mutating into jihadi extremism not only 
in Saudi, but now also in our own streets. My team did an analysis of the global terrorism database. And we found that this huge spike in terrorist killings since 2000 is almost entirely due to groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda that share the same basic tenets of the Saudis' extreme religious beliefs. This is the data that Fareed Zakaria used not long ago in his show to say that almost every terrorist attack in the West has something to do with Saudi Arabia. So the situation is serious. Our money is going to fund unaccountable actors who have caused serious violence, oppression, and death for decades. Well, is there any hope for change? What could we possibly do to change the way the world works? Could we change the rule for buying oil so we don't get sent these impossible threats and crises? Well, there is hope. We know that we can abolish might makes right for oil and other resources, because this bad old rule has been abolished many times before. If you think about it, 300 years ago, might makes right was the world's rule not only for natural resources, but for almost everything, even for human beings. 300 years ago, every country's rules for Africans was, whoever can seize them by force can sell them to us. And that was the rule under which 12 million Africans were forced through the Middle Passage, where the survivors were legally bought as property in the new world. Back then, might made right even for people. Even 100 years ago, might makes right made colonial rule legal. Whoever could control the people of another country got the right to rule those people. Even in our time, might makes right made apartheid legal, gave the right to maintain a racist white regime. Ethnic cleansing, even genocide, used to be permitted by international law, which was little more than legitimation of violence. But now look, the good news is, over 300 years, all of those things I've just mentioned have become violations of international law. The slave trade, colonialism, ethnic cleansing, apartheid, genocide, these are all now violations of international law. And we've even abolished might makes right for a single natural resource, which is diamonds. It's now illegal in almost every country to import diamonds that have been harvested by militant groups. Now look, I'm not saying because we've changed the law that we've magically abolished power. Of course, slaves are still secretly trafficked across borders. Some blood diamonds leak into global commerce. But the great progress that we've made over the past 300 years is turning what used to be acceptable practices of violence into widely reviled crimes. 
And the very good news is that the world is now ready to abolish might makes right for oil and other resources. At the level of ideas, we know a better rule than might makes right, a rule that will hold the power of oil and other resources accountable. And it's nothing other than the rule that a country belongs to its people. Under this rule, if anyone wants to sell off the resources of a country, they have to be accountable to the people when they do so. The people have to have the basic rights, minimal liberties, to find out what's happening to their resources and effectively to protest it if they don't like what the government's doing. The really optimistic part of this story is that the level of ideas, the world already agrees to this rule. Politicians around the world stand up and say, the oil belongs to the people. And they do that because when we take surveys almost everywhere in the world, there are majorities saying that a country belongs to its people. And really good news, the treaties are already signed. We don't need new treaties. Both of the human rights treaties just say in their first article, all peoples may, for their own ends, freely dispose of their natural wealth and resources. Insofar as the world has heroes, there are men like Gandhi and Mandela who fought for the principle that a country should belong to its people. So, for the last few years, I've been developing a program of policies called Clean Trade. Clean Trade shows how importing states like this one can peacefully and responsibly change their own laws so that they align with this principle that all countries belong to their people. Importing states like Britain can taper off their imports of authoritarian oil from any country where citizens lack the basic rights and liberties to hold their government accountable. With clean trade, we would just change our rules about who we buy oil from. We say we're a regime like the Saudis, who rules in your country is none of our business. But until you become more accountable to your people, you'll get none of our business for the country's oil. These reforms are feasible. In fact, they wouldn't be expensive at all. We get 1% of our oil from Angola. We get 2% from Saudi Arabia. We could easily switch to clean sources of oil, almost no increase of price at the pump. And in fact, if we want to do something for the climate, instead of replacing authoritarian oil with other oil, why not taper off those imports and substitute the energy from clean, renewable sources instead? Our countries can take a peaceful stand on the side of peoples in all countries. That's our best way, peacefully, to encourage democratic reforms in regions like the Middle East. At cleantrade.org, we're just launching our new website and our new autumn campaigns over the weekend. You can find places where you can buy conflict-free phones, jewelry, if you have to fill up with petrol, the website will show you which of the major oil companies do less of their business 
with authoritarian regimes. So please come back and look at cleantrade.org over the weekend. You'll see our new website. I know it might seem like might makes right for oil is just the way the world works. And we can't do anything to change it. But if you think about it, that's just how the world seemed to people during the days of the slave trade and during colonialism and blood diamonds. All of those instances of might makes right have now been abolished. If we act together, we could change this bad old rule one more time. We could get ourselves out of business with the men of violence abroad. If we act together, we could create a world beyond blood oil. Thanks very much. So I was really curious as to what Leif was going to say, because this is a really big book. Um, so I thought you did a really good job. <laughs> uh, so I've got a couple of questions, and then we will open up to the audience. Um, my first question is, is slightly moral. And there's uh, a, certainly the beginning of this book makes a strong point about, and a really uncomfortable point, actually. Um, and to quote it, that our private consumption leads to outcomes that we morally can't stand, and that these clash with lots of issues that are actually quite tainting, child labour, uh, banking, sweatshops, etc. Um, and you make a, you, you know, there's a quite a section that talks about global supply chains and actually how completely intertwined we are with them and how impossible it would be to try to extract the places where authoritarian resources, or the resource-cursed countries, um, have got resource in, the, in them. So, you know, everything, everything you're looking at, everything that we use has oil or some of those resources in it. So I suppose my question is, you quite optimistically, particularly at the end there, suggest that it is possible to change um, based on shared principles and morals and integrity. But in a growing world of, of human individualism and in a world where we are increasingly, increasingly comfortable, um, we're healthier, we're better off, what do you see really being the catalyst for change? Yeah. People. So the first thing you said was absolutely right. And this was such a shock when I started to research oil 10 years ago. Oil is not only 90% of the world's transportation. Almost every car, ship, truck, boat runs on oil. But it's in so many things we buy. Our food is made with nitrogen extracted from oil. Anything that's plastic is oil. You may have smeared it on your face this morning. You might brush your teeth with it. It might be in your waistband. It might be helping your sex life. I mean, oil is absolutely everywhere. And at first I thought, well, how can we get fair trade oil? But it's just not, it's just not possible. We can buy oil from less bad companies. And that'll make a difference. But we really need our governments to change the law. And the inspiration here actually is this country and the end of the slave trade. When the slave trade was going, the elite was thoroughly wrapped up in it. 
Church of England, many MPs owned slave plantations in the Caribbean. Slave-grown sugar was 5% of British GDP. Thousands of jobs were in the industry. Everyone thought the slave trade had to continue. But the people of this country, and especially the women actually, just insisted over decades that this moral horror be stopped. And they petitioned, and they marched, and they protested, and the men voted. And it seemed impossible. But they did it. It took 60 years. They did it. We now have an estimate of how much the cost was. As far as we can tell, ending the slave trade cost Britain almost 2% of GDP every year for 60 years. Now imagine Theresa May standing up and saying, I have a plan that's going to cost us 2% of GDP every year for 60 years. Yes, it's called Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> that's excellent. Imagine her saying that. <laughs> getting off blood oil will not cost us anything that amount. It will have compensating benefits in terms of getting terrorism off of our streets, a peaceful, more peaceful world, and getting us out of business with these terrible men. If we pressure enough, we can do it. So it's very much a belief in, in the people. And actually, your book talks about that a lot in terms of the catalyst for the abolition of the slave trade, that fundamentally it was public support that really sustained the campaign and drove it. But I suppose there's a, there's a challenge to what you've just said. So um, the solution presented you know, in your presentation and also in the book is that to lift this curse um, on resource rich countries, it has to be the West that enforces a change in its own practices and its own laws. Um, so we just stop buying oil from nasty regimes. Um, and we talk about safe trade, you talked about the Clean Trade Act as well. But I suppose my question is, also in a world where we have quite a lot of distrust of our politicians um, and of our experts and of also there's a, quite a healthy distrust of the West in general and the West's aims. Um, to what extent do you actually see this taking shape? And you know, your answer to the previous question was, was it's going to be the people that are going to drive it. Um, but back when we were focusing on, um, on abolishing the slave trade, Britain was arguably a stronger superpower than it is now. So they ha it, had, it carried more weight in the world. Um, to what extent is that going to help or hinder? I'm so glad you brought up the issue of trust. What is it that we need now more than weapons, spies, security in our infrastructure? We need trust. Our very difficult history, especially with countries in the Middle East, has ruined the trust that those people have for us. Bombing for democracy it doesn't work. It's incredibly costly for them, for us. And it just doesn't work. We've tried it again and again. What could we do to gain more trust? Peacefully, responsibly, we could change our own laws and say finally to the people of these countries where the oil is, we believe that you own the oil. We're going to get ourselves out of business with those men who have been pressing and attacking you for all these years. We don't believe that we have the right to buy oil from those men. 
And we're going to take a bit of an economic hit to show you that we're standing up for our own principles, which we think you share too. We think the oil belongs to you. We're on your side now. That kind of stand would gain us more trust in the world, and it would encourage the reformers that exist in all of these countries, outside the palaces and even inside the palaces. If we stand by them, they will be the ones who can change their countries from the inside. Imagine a Middle East that's peaceful and where the people are sovereign. It could happen. What can we do peacefully to bring that day about? It sounds beautiful. <laughs> sounds like utopia. Um, yes, I completely agree. That is the approach that we would take. But how do we, how do we make that decision? How do we get our prime minister, who may or may not be Theresa May at the time, to stand up and say, actually, we have decided that we are not going to buy oil or resources from authoritarian regimes? The hardest thing, actually, with politicians is to get them to think long term. If you're in government, if we were in government, we would be thinking about tomorrow and next week. And it's always easier to keep your old allies, right? When our ally was the Shah of Iran, it was easier to stay with him. And then when our ally was Saddam Hussein, we stick with him. And Gaddafi, we stuck with him. And now the Saudis who are spreading this intolerant version of Islam around the world, we're sticking with them. Tomorrow, it's always easier to stick with our old allies. But we don't have to have a moral argument for people in government. People can see, they can see that the Middle East is destabilizing. So they can see that this terrorism is coming to our shores simply for our own security. We should insist they look past tomorrow to next year and act to make us safe. Stop sending our money to those men of violence abroad. So at the RSA, we, when we come up with policy ideas, we're very clear that unless there is widespread buy-in from the public, actually those policy ideas are likely to fail. And there's enough examples in our history to show that's the case. So if I understand rightly, are you saying that one of the ways in which we convince the, those in power, and certainly our politicians, would be to create a mass movement from the public? Yeah. That's right. And everyone has to act. So. All of us as citizens can act. As consumers, we can act. Again, Clean Trade Org this weekend, where to buy your gasoline, jewelry, uh, phones. Investors can act. We're developing a clean trade portfolio so that capital goes to companies that do less business with authoritarian regime. We've got clean trade shipping plans so that the shipping industry stops transporting oil that's been stolen from the people of these countries. If you do one of these campaigns, you know everyone has to act together. But look, the optimistic thing about this campaign is everyone can see that this bad old rule of sending our money to whoever has the most guns is causing so much trouble. And everyone, except for maybe the authoritarians and the armed groups, agrees that basically a country should belong to its people. We don't have to convince anyone of the new principle. We just have to get ourselves to align our laws with the principles we already believe. We just have to act with our values and our interests. That's right. <laughs> um, so I've got one more question, and then I'll open up to the audience. Um, so even if the West enforced the principles of the Clean Trade Act, you say, quite rightly in the book, there's likely to be displacement, because not everything is going to happen at the same time. So if Britain decides to stop buying oil from Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is likely to carry on sending oil to China. 
and Britain or the US will end up buying it from China. So we're, we're literally just displacing that activity. Um, you present an idea which is around the, called the Clean Hand Trust. Could you just expand a little bit more on what that is? Yeah, you're right. And the Chinese question is a big one. Maybe we can talk more about that um, if people are interested. Look, we want to enforce the property rights of the people of these countries in the Middle East, in Africa, and so on. How can we do that? Well, we stop buying oil stolen from them. But then, as you say, if we stop buying that oil, China will buy that oil, and China will make goods with that oil, and we'll end up buying stolen oil secondhand. If China buys $3 billion of oil from, say, South Sudan, we can put $3 billion worth of tariffs on Chinese goods as they come into this country. We save that money in a bank account for the people of the country whose oil have been stolen, and we can give that money back to the people once they have a minimally decent, accountable government. So again, we're force, enforcing the property rights of the people in their own resources and giving the, the Chinese an incentive not to buy more oil that's been stolen from the people of South Sudan. I thought it was a really interesting idea. Um, so I will open up to the audience, because I, I could probably just carry on talking today forever on my own, which is not the idea. Um, so we'll take a bank of three questions, this gentleman, this gentleman, and this gentleman at the back next to Mari, please. Thanks very much for the talk. In 1998, I went to a small event in London at which a recently retired oil executive was speaking. And he said, the reason the industry is taking action on climate change is because we don't want to be tried as mass murderers in the future. I was quite surprised by the directness of his language and consequently very disappointed that the oil industry didn't take more action. I'm just wondering how you feel, to what extent you feel legal instruments can be implemented. And I'm thinking particularly of organizations like uh, Client Earth and individuals like Polly Higgins with her proposed law of ecocide. Okay, and then there was just this gentleman here. Thank you, Alex. Behind you. <laughs> Yeah, a, a wonderful talk. How do you decide which countries are owned by the, uh, uh, are responsible to their people? After all, China is a one-party state, and uh, it's only d democratic by a fairly narrow criteria. Okay, thank you. And then, gentlemen, right at the back. Hello, Peter Cameron. I work in the oil and gas industry. Uh, um, in my spare time, I'm a historian, and. Um, I had so many points. I think um, so I think your analysis was a bit simplistic. That's what I thought. Um, and when you basically, it's, it's imperialism, American imperialism. That's what you're pushing. So if we're making ourselves a little bit poorer, that means Britain, but but America will be a lot wealthier because it's replacing Saudi oil with American shale and um, and new technology oil production. Um, Trump said we're going to have energy domination, and that's exactly what you're pushing. Um, maybe that's a good thing, but it's, it's, that's what it is. It's just pushing American exports. Um, the other thing is, why bother? Why worry about it? The world's going off oil. Within 20 or 40 years, Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia will be irrelevant again. It will just sink back into poverty, and there's nothing to worry about. This is why these events are wonderful. Um, Okay, Leif, over to you. <laughs> Good, let me get the second question, then the first, and then the third. So how do we decide what are the countries where it's okay to buy oil from? This is a 
Interesting question. Let's just take this seriously. The oil belongs to the people. How can we tell whether a government's accountable to its people? Here's four tests. See what you think. Can the people find out what's happening to their oil? Can they talk about that with each other without fearing imprisonment or death? Can citizens protest what the government is doing without fearing imprisonment or death? And if a majority of citizens strongly disagree with what the government is doing, will the government's policy change in a reasonable time? Now, luckily, we have good independent metrics for civil liberties and basic rights that let us measure those things. And we're not talking about Norway here. We're talking minimal, bare bones rights and liberties. So when I showed that map of the countries in red, those are the countries that do not meet those criteria now. Those are the countries where the people could not be holding their government accountable. And that's almost 50% of the world's traded oil. So 50% of the world's oil right now is being stolen from the people of its countries. That's what we have to change by changing our own laws. And we do have to pressure this from so many angles. We have to do consumer action, citizen action, investors shipping. And the legal action is very interesting, too. So with colleagues, we're going to try to bring cases to court actually against the companies that are transporting this stolen oil and saying, look, this is a tort. This is you're transporting stolen goods. When it comes into the Thames estuary, we're going to challenge them and say, no more. That oil actually belongs to the people of the country. So it's exactly the kind of thing uh, that you were talking about. Um, we hope that the world is going off oil. It is going to take some time. The transition, energy transitions do take decades. We should be switching off as fast as we possibly can. This is the way to solve two problems at once. The best way to get off oil is to get off blood oil. Now, it's true, part of the, part of the way this will happen is that there's a lot of oil in the world. There's a lot of oil now coming from America. Norway has a lot of oil. Just saw an article yesterday, the North Sea is perking back up as a source of oil. There's a lot of oil now in the world. That just makes it easier for us to do what we have to do, which is to say, we don't need to buy those imports from those guys anymore. This is a soft power strategy. This is a strategy for us to take a stand on principle, to gain trust, to say, look, we don't think we have a right to buy that oil anymore from those men. It's easier now because there's a lot of oil in the world. But our ultimate goal is to get out of business with the men of violence at the same time as we transition away from oil and replace it with renewable sources of energy. We can have a win-win. Um, and I might pick up on the second part of, um, of the gentleman's comment. Um, I mean, is there a risk that by us making this decision to replace might makes right, we come across as West knows best? Yeah. So remember... And how do we mitigate that? Remember when I showed you that it went by fast. There was those treaties, the human rights covenants, the big ones, both of the main covenants... 98% of the people in the world live in a country that has signed one of those treaties. And the phrase in Article 1 that I put up there, all peoples shall for their own ends freely dispose of their natural wealth and resources. That was an anti-colonial principle. Chile put that principle in the covenants. 
that principle was put in the human rights covenants to keep our countries, to keep our companies from exploiting the people in the, that principle is the principle of the third world that they put in there to resist us, and rightly so. So when we talk about the oil belongs to the people, that principle resonates in developing countries. Let me just say, I just came back from Brazil on Tuesday. The great phrase of Brazil, o petróleo é nosso, the oil is ours. That was the revolutionary slogan of Brazil as the people there took over their resources for their own country. Um, questions, also from ladies, which would be nice. So this gentleman down here, please. Um, gentleman here. If you deem certain countries uh, unfit for trade, wouldn't it encourage further forms of, sort of criminality and violence by increasing the smuggling between neighbours? So if you take a hypothetical example where Nigeria is crossed off the list, but Ghana kept on it, would you not encourage criminality by uh, you know, leading to greater smuggling involving Niger and, well, Niger Delta militants taking oil across to Ghana? And then we had a question, this gentleman here? Okay, that's right. Yep, where Murray is. Yeah, um, I was interested in the trans. You talked about transition, the transition from where we are now to what you're talking about, and that um, if you take out what 10, 15 of the top 20 suppliers, 30, 40 percent of the of initial uh, current production, the nature of the market is that what will happen to the spike in the oil price as there's this real flip in supply versus demand, and how long it will it take for that to wash out. And therefore, the importance of getting our legitimacy for governments to do this, because it will flow straight through to everybody's pocket. So what is how long you think it will take to make the transition, and how important is the legitimacy for what is a, a, a philosophical, philosophical correct approach? Does that make sense? And then there's one final question right at the back, please. Hi, my fear is we've been through regime change and it didn't work. And do some of these countries actually want democracy? I think there's this arrogance amongst us as everyone must and want to live like us. Do we know that? That's it, please. Great. Do they want democracy? Think back to 1974. Elton John and ABBA were at the top of the charts. It wasn't that long ago. Authoritarians ruled Spain and Portugal, supported by a reactionary religious elite. Back then, they said, these people don't want democracy. They're not ready for democracy. They can't handle democracy. There's no way they can make that transition safely. That's been said again and again for so many countries since the days of colonialism. Let's let the people decide. Let's stop sending our money to those who are oppressing and attacking them and see if they want to have more control over their own countries. I believe they do. If you look at the Arab Spring, the places where the authoritarians fell are the places that did not have oil. The places where the authoritarians survived are the places where our money kept the authoritarian in place, with one exception, which is Libya. But there, the rebels had NATO as their air force. The people do want control over their own countries. We should get out of business with those who are stopping it. The smuggling question is an interesting one. As it happens, Nigeria is above the line, so that shows you how low the line is. Oil is actually pretty hard to smuggle. It, it comes in big tankers, which we're tracking with satellites all over the world. There will be some smuggling, 
but the major flows of oil we can keep track of um, pretty easily. It's heavy, hard to transport. We can find out where the oil is going and stop, stop it from going anywhere out of the countries we don't want to get it from. How long will it take for us to get out of business with authoritarian regimes? So I asked Nick Butler, who is the energy columnist for the FT, and he was a vice president of BP, and I said, Nick, how long would it take North America and Europe to get out of business with authoritarian countries? And he said, well, which countries? And I said, these, and I showed him the map, basically, with the red countries. And he said, really? He said, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Algeria. I said, yeah, how long would it take? He came back a little while. He said, North America, no problem. Take a matter of months, be almost costless. The barrels just switch around. But Europe is interesting. So Europe, as you know, has got a lot of energy coming from Russia, Qatar, Algeria. Butler thought that it would take three to five years and tens of billions of pounds. Now, that's not trivial. Yeah, tens of billions of pounds, not trivial. But when you put it in the context of, say, defense spending, that's certainly manageable for us to get out of business with authoritarian regimes who we are empowering by continuing to buy their oil. So transitions aren't costless, but it's not unmanageable either. We could do it. And, and did he explain why such a short time frame? Because that three to five years surprises me. Yeah. It's not, the problem here, as always, is not the economics. It's the politics. So Britain itself is in a relatively good position. We get 15% of our oil and 15% of our gas from authoritarian regimes. We could get that stuff elsewhere. Continental Europe, well, Norway would have to switch out production. You'd have to get the pipelines to run back and forth. You'd have to get some more LNG coming in from abroad, liquefied natural gas. But this is all chemistry set stuff. The economics, the engineering, that's not hard. What's hard is the politics convincing our leaders finally to do something different so that they look a little bit farther into the future instead of just going with business as usual. I've got another question, but I will open up before I do. Uh, gentlemen here and the two gentlemen at the back, please. Um, in tune with the, the point of we're moving off oil and we need to move off oil, um, is it, and there's some good positive optimistic approaches with this, I think. But are we just tinkering at the edges of, of a much bigger problem in that we our dependence on oil as a, as a civilization is having catastrophic effects with the climate, with depletion of natural environments, then all the, the uh, obviously the conflicts and so forth. Um, and the West's not immune from it, right? In the US at the moment, we have a vice president, CEO of Exxon. Um, we had the, the Bush years with Cheney years behind a lot of the Iraq invasion. Um, it's great that we aim to trade with less authoritarian regimes, but the, but the, if the, the corruption that oil brings to our own political systems in the West, are we just tinkering at the edges of it? Um, and there were two, this two at the back, yes. Hello. Um, yeah, that was very interesting, and if only we can get there. But why, when we stop 
buying oil from Saudi Arabia, do you think we should also stop selling them weapons? Uh, if the uh, moves to clean off the US is uh, going to be uh, fairly cost neutral, I'm here. Um, what do you think to the proposal that the US stops spending money trying to prop up Middle East regimes and spends that money compensating Europe's moves to clean oil? And we will take one more round of questions as well before we finish, so there will be another opportunity. Thank you so much. These are fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, the US is in the midst of a populist surge. UK is going through Brexit. Everybody's consumed with that right now. What comes next? What comes after this? If you're engaged with these issues, you know that these things take time to develop. What are peaceful, progressive, positive proposals that we can generate right now for what comes next? People are looking for something that's better than what's going on now, something that will unite our countries behind common goals. What better way than to gain trust by reversing the disastrous policies of the past and saying, finally, we're going to stand by our own principles and make ourselves safer at the same time. If you were worried about this issue, climate and arms trade, we have to have our stuff ready to go. A window of opportunity will open next year, two years. We can plug in our proposals, and it'll become the new normal. So I work on oil. We shouldn't buy oil from authoritarians. Let me make comments on some other issues. We should not be selling arms to these countries. As a matter of fact, as far as I can tell, we sell a lot of arms to Saudi Arabia. The same company sells extremely sophisticated surveillance software to help the Saudi regime keep track of the communications of all their citizens, including the social media. Our police go to Saudi to train their policemen to help them keep the population in check. Our government has always said that we need Saudis for oil. We need Saudis because we need to sell them arms. And we need Saudis to help to keep us safe from terrorism threats. Well, we don't need to buy their oil anymore. We shouldn't be selling them weapons anymore. And my view is that we're defending ourselves against threats that ultimately Saudi has had a big role in creating by spreading this extreme intolerant version of Islam around the world. We should get out of business with that regime, especially for oil, but we should be very circumspect about our other relations too. Three questions and one answer. I'm sorry, there was that third. Yeah. I can't even read my own notes. I got so carried away. It was more a point about the uh, American strike fault propping up the uh, yeah. regime. Yeah. Uh, why not use that money to uh, compensate Europe for its transition? Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great idea. Thank you so much. <laughs> we should do exactly that. Let's do that. Yeah, um, that's exactly right. One more round of questions. This lady here, there was this gentleman here. And this gentleman down here, please. I just want to revisit this point about who's an authoritarian regime and who, which kind of people get 
to make decisions about what happened to their happens to their oil and natural resources. I'm gonna, I, I came in late, but I'm gonna go out on a limb and assume that Canada was not one of the red countries on your map yet. <laughs> if you start, if you stop buying oil from like really authoritarian regimes, um, you're gonna end up with a lot of oil sands, oil coming back into the market, which is not only incredibly filthy, environmentally destructive, it's destroying ecosystems on a vast scale, but also, you know, that's that's like stolen from the Native Americans who Canada treats incredibly badly. Um, and yeah, if you're if you're creating a market for that, shouldn't we actually start focusing on policies that are uh, looking to tax the extraction of all natural resources so we can start moving our economies more to circular economy models for not just oil but all materials because um, we can't just keep plundering everything um, even in places like Canada and its vast wilderness. Yeah, that's a great question. Maurice, gentlemen down here. Uh, thank you very much. My name is Malcolm Aiken and my question is about the resources belonging to the people, and I wonder who the people are. Um, we have problems in what's now called Myanmar uh, with the Rohingyas, and the majority of what we used to call the Burmese don't think the Rohingyas are Burmese at all, so they're not part of the people. But even within the developed West, we are seeing chief executives pay as a multiple of the average salary in their companies, increasing dramatically, orders of magnitude. And I just wonder where property being the people, although it's tremendously appealing, where it begins and where it ends and who we're really talking about. Hello. Um, on your map earlier, you had the various countries that were oil rich and the various countries that were authoritarian. And when you switched from the map of oil-rich countries to the map of authoritarian countries, some of them disappeared. And I wondered what was happening in those countries and what they were doing right or what, what's happening. Okay. Thank you. So these policies are compatible even with a radical shift towards climate-friendly policies. It's true we don't need to buy authoritarian oil anymore. We can make it up with non-authoritarian oil. But why not, as you've been suggesting, switch away from oil completely? We don't have to replace authoritarian oil with oil. If we're brave, we can replace those barrels with alternative sources of energy, electric cars, and so on. So if you really don't want to tap Canada's oil sands, don't. If you don't want to use them more than they are, don't do it. Replace that with alternative energy. That would be the most courageous plan of all to combine this with a very strong pro-climate agenda. We could do both things at once and transition away from oil entirely as we transition away from blood oil. And if you're gonna support that, I would support you with that too. It's not required, but it's absolutely compatible with this program. Who are the people? We have to say that the people are all the citizens of the country. And we get the international definition of citizens. So the Rohingya are citizens of Burma. And we recognize the Rohingya as citizens of Burma. It's the only way we can define who the people are. The citizens are all the people of the country. And then we should also say that indigenous minority groups within a country have rights against their national government and must be protected by existing international law that's already on the book. 
why did some countries disappear? So I showed all the oil-producing countries, and then I showed the resource-cursed ones, the oil-cursed ones, the ones in red. How is it that Canada, Britain, Norway ended up not being oil-cursed? Now, all these other countries are fraught with authoritarian, civil war, corruption. Here's the big difference. When did the oil money start coming in? If oil money starts coming in when the government is accountable to its people, like in Norway and Canada, then of course the people force the government to use that money for public goods, for the good of the people. And that's where you don't see an oil curse. That's where oil is a blessing. But when the oil money comes in, when the country is under the cosh of a strong man or in the midst of a civil war, then the oil goes for more oppression, more conflict, more corruption. And that's where we see oil intensifying the problems that are bad for those countries and also bad for us. Ladies and gentlemen, we are going to have to wrap up. I want to give you a huge thank you and uh, thank Leif for coming and speaking about a massively complex issue. An hour's discussion really doesn't do the detail of this book justice. So if you want to know more, please do go and see a copy. Um, thank you for your fantastic questions and please join me in giving Leif a round of applause. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.